Welcome to the BCEN and Friends podcast. Today, Janie Schumacher and Mark Eggers have the pleasure of speaking with Doug Harward, the CEO and founder of Training Industry, which is known as the most trusted online source of information on the business of learning. They'll be getting to know Doug better and discuss how vital training is to the success of the nursing profession as a whole. Now over to Mark and Janie with today's exciting and informative podcast. Hello, and welcome to BCEN and Friends podcast, where we hold interesting conversations about learning with a range of thought leaders, BCEN certification holders, and industry professionals. But most importantly, create value and insight for you, our professional nurses across the emergency spectrum. We hope you find our discussions interesting, informative, sometimes funny, sometimes serious, but always valuable. I'm Mark Eggers, Manager of Education Technology Services at BCEN, and your host for today. And I'm joined by our co-host, Janie Shoemaker, Executive Director at BCEN. Hi, Janie. Hi, Mark. So, Janie, we have another great guest joining us today on BCEN and Friends, Doug Harward. Doug is the founder and CEO of Training Industry, Inc., he is internationally recognized as one of the leading strategists for training. His respect as one of the industry's leading authorities on competitive analysis for training services and works with international companies and new business startups in building training organizations. He previously served as the director of global learning for Nortel Networks, where he led the industry's largest global training outsourcing engagement with Price Waterhouse Coopers. He received a Chairman's Global Award for Community Service for his work in developing integrated learning organization strategies within higher education, public schools, and business. He has worked in the training industry for more than 25 years. Doug received an MBA from Fuqua School of Business at Duke University and a BSBA in marketing from Appalachian State University. Doug is co-authored a book, What Makes a Great Training Organization? So welcome, Doug, to BCN and Friends. We're so excited to have you. Well, thanks, Mark, and thanks, Janie. It's my pleasure. Looking forward to a, a good discussion. Oh, great. Let, let me begin by this question with you. Tell us a little bit, Doug, about yourself. What was your journey in learning? How have you become one of the preeminent voices on learning and training in the profession of learning and training? Well, I think you gave a, a wonderful introduction, so I appreciate those kind words. Um, if, essentially, I've been in the profession for a very long time, actually now now over 33 uh, years. And I started out, I didn't actually start out to be a training professional. Originally in my career as a production manager, then went into industrial engineering and led an industrial engineering effort back in, I hate to tell the year, but back in the the late 80s to uh, redesign manufacturing plants for the company I was working for, Nortel Networks at the time. One of the things we realized uh, in, as we were transitioning the plants was that we actually had to retrain all the workers uh, in the manufacturing facility because their jobs were going to change after their area was redesigned. So I went to my boss as a plant manager and said, hey, we can't do this without a training department. We, you know, Originally, we had Joe teaching Ted, teaching Alice, teaching Sally kind of thing. And uh, he said, you know, that's a darn great idea. Go do it. And so that's how I actually got into the profession. It's kind of by, by mistake and uh, built that team. And then over the years, 
ended up uh, internationally leading all training worldwide for the company. So that was it was uh, kind of an interesting transition uh, over a number of years. And uh, then was able to found this company. Uh, and the reason I did is as a leader of a, a very large training organization, I mean, we spent you know more than 150 million a year on training worldwide. One of the things you, you do is you meet and learn a lot about the supply side of the industry. You know, what are the companies that are providing training services? Where do you get content? What kind of learning technology and so forth? And uh, what I found was the market was incredibly inefficient, was incredibly fragmented. And, um, you know, fortunately I saw an opportunity. So uh, I left there and started what is now trainingindustry.com with the mission to kind of create a more efficient marketplace and to be able to more efficiently bring buyers of training services and, uh, and suppliers of training products and services together in a more effective way. So it's been, a, it's been an interesting journey, but it wasn't something I sought out 30-some years or actually now 40 years after getting out of undergrad and said, hey, let's go do this. Uh, it just turned out that way. And, you know, sometimes uh, serendipitously, you uh, find yourself in a really good place. Someone could say that that happened for me. Gosh, interesting. Very good. So, you know, Doug, we know you're a lifelong learner, of course. You've told us all about your information. That's great. You know, in your view, why is lifelong learning critical for nurses? Well, you know, lifelong learning, the, the, the concept and the term has been popularized now for, you know, a number of years uh, and for good reason, right? Lifelong learning is, is something that quite frankly, not just nurses, but quite frankly, anybody, no matter what your profession, we should be thinking about lifelong learning. Uh, And, you know, the real driver for that, and and we'll kind of go into nursing specifically, but the real driver for that is that, you know, the world around us, and this is, it's it's very telling for the time we're in today, right? The world around us is changing very rapidly, right? And sometimes changing faster than we're ready for it to, depending on where we are in, in our career. But the world around us is changing every day and we got to keep up with the changes. You know, people aren't necessarily changing for us. Sometimes they're changing for good or, or it may be for whatever reason. <clears throat> I'd hate to say just for political reasons, but, but there are a lot of changes going on and technology changes and all kinds of shifts. So the, the, the concept of lifelong learning is really about keeping yourself competitive, keeping yourself uh, in line with the skills that you need to be successful in your job. And, uh, in, and as nurses, I, I think probably the, the most telling story is, oh my gosh, healthcare is changing so much so fast, right? There's methodologies or methods that's changing. There's medicines that's changing. The technologies are changing. And if you're not continuously staying up with those changes, you know, unfortunately you can get left behind. Nobody wants to get left behind or nobody wants the the skill sets to, or their skill sets to somewhat become obsolete, right? Because it puts you in kind of a, a vulnerable position where uh, maybe that next opportunity is not going to be there for you. Or maybe we've seen this in manufacturers, certain roles where you actually get pushed out because you didn't keep up. So uh, so nurses, I think, is, is one of those professions and all professions uh, or skill sets within the healthcare field is probably magnified many, many times because of, you know, the idea too that, you know, the healthcare profession doesn't really deal with mediocrity very well, right? If you think about it, I mean, we as, as I hate to use the term customers, but let's call it patients, 
of healthcare services, we expect relative perfection of the people that's taking care of us. Maybe that's a, a, an unfair word, but it's kind of almost ish true, right? We expect that when we go to the hospital or we go to get medical treatment or whatever, it's going to be right. And so there's a lot of pressure on nurses and healthcare workers. And, you know, I think that's a good thing, though. That's a good thing. You're so right about that as far as, it, you know, it's a fast-paced field. Nurses keeping up with training. And right, we are customers. I go as a patient. I want the best I can get. So absolutely, you hit that right on the nail. Thank you. So, you know, Doug, you often talk about the importance of being a student of one's profession. So what do you think that means for our nurses? Well, I, I think it, it, it relates, obviously, back. This is a nice segue from the last discussion uh, about lifelong learning. Uh, I'm a believer that that um, that that if we really want to be successful at anything we do, I don't care if it's our job profession, if it's playing piano, if it's being an athlete, it's being whatever, to be the absolute best, it means that we have to be very, very focused on what we're doing. And what I call being a student of our profession, a student of our profession basically is one, it's, it's really the recognition of the, you may have heard this, this phrase before, the idea that, you know, sometimes the more you know, the more you realize you don't know, right? It's the, in, in the concept of competency levels, is the, is the higher we go up in the competency, the more we recognize that there's more that we don't know and more we need to know. That's what scientists kind of live on this particular premise, right? The more knowledge they gain, the more they find out they need to learn more about other things. And I believe being a student of the profession is really about that, is recognizing that, that even as I gain knowledge and skills, I'll then recognize more things that I need to learn. And, and I, it's also, I think, the commitment from an individual that just wants to be the best they can be. Now, many people choose that, I think, because it's just in their DNA. It's in their nature. I, I just want to be good at what I do. I want to be recognized as being good. I want to internally feel good about what I do. I want to know that every day when I leave work or when I put my head on the pillow, I gave it my best shot today. I brought it to the, I brought my, my A game today. And, and I think the only way you get there is you become a student of what you do. And that means you continue to learn, but you also continue to focus on how you get better. Because learning isn't just about knowledge. It's also about doing, it's about skills. It's about practice. And I think this element of practice is something we don't talk enough about in the professional world. We talk obviously about it in, you know, musicians, we hear about athletes and whatnot. But in the professional world, which where, you know, things we do are somewhat daily habits, but we don't really talk a lot about, so how do we practice those habits within a professional kind of job? And I think that's, that's critically important. You are so right. You know, you can think of any athlete, any field, whatever it may be, how many times they get interviewed and they're told, well, I practice over and over and over and things over, you know, even Olympics, you see all the great things they do, but all the hours that people put in, they make it look easy, but all behind the scenes that is done. So absolutely. Thank you. Very good. Janie, how about you? You have anything you'd like to ask Doug? I do, Doug. I'm uh, really resonating as, you know, as a nurse myself. It, it's so true. When you start to learn more, it, it then occurs to you, wow, there's really a lot of things I 
didn't know that I didn't know. And, and that, that statement you made really, really um, resonates with me. And I, I think it is so critical that, um, that healthcare professionals, nurses stay up with the changes. Things are changing fast. Nobody wants their skill set to become obsolete or feel like you're flat footed when you're trying to take care of a patient that's got a complex issue. Uh, and it is, it is so true. And uh, doing all this can make you so much more valuable to your organization, but ultimately to your patient and their family. Um, so one of the things I want to ask you, Doug, is you, you talk a lot about deliberate practice and that that's very interesting to me. Can you tell us a little bit more about deliber deliberate practice and, and how does that really relate to building and sustaining that high performance that we've been sure. talking about? Absolutely. It's, it's, uh, it's, uh, I'm, I guess I'll call it a concept that's very near and dear to me and has become over the last few years. Give me a little story about deliberate practice is a, a term or a concept that was actually coined by a gentleman who uh, in the last few years became a very good friend of mine but unfortunately he just passed away just a couple of months ago. Uh, some of you may have heard of him. His name is Dr. Anders Ericsson and he was a professor, <clears throat> excuse me, and a scientist at, uh, at Florida State University. Anders by profession was a psychologist, right? And, but he would call himself uh, in his lifelong study really about understanding performance and what it is about people who perform at the very, very highest level, what is it they do to perform at the highest level? How did they get there? I mean, it, you know, some people say, well, you know, you were just born a good whatever. You know, I was just born with the, the natural abilities to be good at whatever. Uh, and you can take people, let's take Tiger Woods or LeBron James or Beethoven many years ago. These people are recognized as some of the, as some of the, the very best in their profession over the many years, Michael Jordan, another great example that people would recognize their names. If you ask them, and by the way, Anders did ask all those except Beethoven, wasn't able to talk to him, of course. But if you would ask them, what was it that really, really got you and propelled you to, to be so great at what you do? Every one of them, every one of them did and would say a lot of work, a lot of practice. But one of the things that Anders found in his research that is really, really fascinating that the concept of practice doesn't just mean repetition by itself. And, you know, the idea of doing something over and over and over, because, you know, you and I can, can have a certain activity or whatever it may be. Like I've used golf as an example. I love to play golf and I play golf very, very frequently, but darn it over time, <clears throat> I get frustrated because I'm not getting any better, but I, I'm, I got reputation going but I don't seem to, to always get better. What Anders found in that, in, 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 in those who do, is that not only do they do things a lot, but they do it in a very deliberate way, right? And, uh, and, and deliberate meaning, you know, there was, there was a plan and whatnot. I, I'll, I'll kind of lay out some of those things that we call the, the elements of deliberate practice. And, and some of you may actually recognize, <clears throat> excuse me, this story, there's a, a, there was a book that became very popular over the last few years, written by a gentleman named Malcolm Gladwell. So most of you may know if you've read or heard anything of Gladwell, he did a book called Tipping Point. But this particular book is called Outliers. And in Outliers, he tells a story and basically lays out this thing called the 10,000-hour rule. 
and this became very popular a few years back. And the 10,000 hour rule basically stated that if you do something, anybody does anything for 10,000 hours, by definition, you're going to get pretty darn good at it. And he actually took that or developed that rule from Anders work. But here's what was interesting. Anders and I had a wonderful conversation about this a few years ago. Anders actually came back after that was, was uh, the book was published and, and, and Gladwell quoted that and said, you know what? 10,000 hours, that, that is a lot of repetition, no matter what it is you're doing. But he, he re actually refuted it and said, but that's really not what it's about. The idea of becoming the best that you can be at whatever you do is about repetition, but it's more about how deliberate you are in how you practice those things. And so maybe the idea is to kind of talk about what does it mean then to be deliberate in your practice, right? And, and and this is this is where I think the sweet spot really is. And I hope these things are read. I'm going to kind of lay them out real, real quickly. I'm not going to go into a ton of depth. But the first thing about being deliberate in practice is the idea that when you go to practice, that you have a plan, that you've actually designed your practice with the intention of getting better. As a difference for me going out and playing golf, I just go play. Right. And I'm thinking I'm getting more repetition, but I'm not very deliberate about getting better. I'm just playing. I'm, I'm going through the motions. The second is in, in just the same way as it's got to be designed, it also has to be repeated a lot. The third is the reality is we need a coach. A lot of us think we can do it all on our own, but those who have performed the best actually have a coach. Even Tiger Woods, the greatest golfer in the world, many would, would claim he had a coach and still does, as a matter of fact, right? Uh, another thing is that you need to have immediate feedback. And, and the concept of immediate feedback is an interesting thing because immediate feedback doesn't mean that somebody else is going to be watching you and, hey, immediately say, hey, Doug, you know, you need to do this, you need to do that. No, immediate feedback is what you give yourself. When you become conscious of what's right and wrong as you learn, then when you make a mistake, you consciously know that you didn't do it right and you self-correct. And this concept of self-correction is an important part of your ability to continue to improve because if you can't self-correct, what you do is you continue to do the wrong behavior over and over and over, and it becomes habitual. And so you have to be conscious of that. The next is that practice has to be demanding, right? I and, mean, you know, if you're going to get better at something, I don't care what it is, if it's phlebotomists, you know, they, they're doing the same thing. It's got to be demanding. you got to... Practice has to be demanding. It's got to challenge you. It's got to take you to new levels you've never been before. And last, and this is contrary to what we in the, the corporate training profession have talked about for many years, is that practice really isn't about having fun. You know, we've talked in our profession that learning is really supposed to be fun. Let's make it fun and engaging and all these things. Well, that's, a, that's a, a wonderful objective to make learning engaging because we want it to be effective. We want people to get engaged in the learning exercise or experience. But the reality is, if you're really going to move to the next level, learning or practice actually is hard work because you got you got to push through levels that you've never pushed through before. Now, there's a lot of depth to these particular six elements, and I apologize for kind of going off on the long story there. But I think it's a powerful thing that we as a, as a professional, whether we're a nurse or, or in anything. By the way, the, the latest study that, that Anders was very, very deep into 
very, very deep study. Unfortunately, it wasn't ever complete, but I think the, the professional at Florida State will. He was studying surgeons. And wow. the reason is think about the exceptional performance that we have or expectation of a surgeon. Right? We talked about earlier the, the idea that we can't afford mediocrity in healthcare. Right? We darn sure can't afford mediocrity, mediocrity in, in surgery. Right? We expect mm -hmm. exceptional performance. And so Anders was trying to understand that better because, you know, you don't get a chance to practice, right, what you do live in game. I don't get to go and go do surgery and I really haven't perfected my skill yet, but I'm going to practice on the job. Well, in the corporate world, oftentimes our practice is on the job. And so what we've learned in the corporate world is this idea of deliberate practice is really the idea of how do we embed practice routines into the day-to-day -day learning function because sometimes economically it's not affordable to build a lot of practice in a training session where somebody's taken off the job. So we have to learn a lot. We've got a long way to go in our profession to learn how to incorporate this into professional training. So I hope that helps explain this concept of deliberate practice. Uh, and I hope I didn't go too far out on the edges for you, but it's, it's a fascinating, fascinating study for me. And I've been in the profession for many years. I'm still every day learning more about this and, and, uh, and, and delving into it. No, Doug, I think that was really terrific. And I, I, I always, I'm learning something every time I get the chance to talk to you. Um, it's not just about repetition. I think that's probably a mistake a lot of us make, including myself, mm -hmm. you know, you learning, learning something new, I'm going to repeat it and repeat it and repeat it until I can do it in my sleep. But you know, that ability to, to have um, to have that immediate feed, feedback and self-correct and have that coach and, 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 and to have a plan around what you're trying to accomplish. Um, and it's not all fun and games. Uh, it, it's hard work. I think those are great. Absolutely. Um, those are great takeaways. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering, Doug, mm -hmm. then as BCEN is trying to support nurses in general and, of course, nurses that hold our certifications, um, as we work on, on being a learning organization and offering that additional support, what advice might you have for BCEN as we're on this path? Yeah, well, I, I appreciate uh, you asking that. You know, I'm, I'm, because of the work that we do at Training Industry, you know, we are also, we have a research arm of our, of our business. We, we work very hard to understand uh, the capabilities and best practices of what we call high-performing training organizations. Now, we've kind of branded that around what we call GTOs, or great training organizations, and actually have a book that I co-wrote that defines those capabilities and practices of great training organizations. And, and, for, and I know BCEN is, is, is and becoming a great training organization for your constituents. The one thing that we have learned is the most powerful thing you can do to be great at what you do as a, as a training organization, learning organization, is, is, is to be relevant. Now, that sounds like a, a simple, simple concept and a simple word. We, we actually coined the phrase in this one, relevance is really about strategic alignment. And what strategic alignment basically means is that everything you do and you have to work hard at this, must be strategically aligned to the needs of the organization that you're supporting. Because reality is, even though you're, you're helping train nurses, 
The reality is you're helping train nurses to work within an organization because they don't do their job independently. They're a part of something a lot bigger than them, right? The hospital, the medical center, the whatever, the clinic they're a part of. And everything you do has to be aligned to the needs of that organization and the needs to the individual, right? Oftentimes, training organizations kind of get, get offset of that and they get focused more on the individual. You know, over many years, uh, you know, it's a very popular to say, well, we're learner-centric. That's a wonderful, wonderful thing, but the reality is a lot of times the learners doesn't know what they don't know, mm-hmm. right? And so if you only focus on on what's good for the learner, which means you go out and ask the learner, what do you need? What kind of training do you need? Well, they don't know what they don't know. Mm-hmm. How can they answer that question in a way that will push them to a new level? Mm-hmm. So you have to go to the organization as well and say, what do you need from those professionals in your organization? And if you design the, and, and deliver those particular uh, let's, let's call it either products, learning, learning programs, learning products, learning experiences, whatever, that is very closely aligned to the needs of the organization they're going to work for and then to the needs to learn. I think you'll, you'll be wonderful. You'll be great. And you'll, in, in our assessments, you will reach what we call the great or, training organization status. But uh, it's a, it, it's a, the, the concept of relevant is funny. I think it's, it's, a, it's a way overused term in some regards, but it's also a very misunderstood term, meaning we sometimes don't give enough thought to what does it really mean to be relevant. And, uh, and, and that's what I would challenge your organization. And you're probably already there, but you know, you know, it's, it's what we challenge anybody. And, and as a matter of fact, our own organization, we look in the mirror all the time trying to figure out, are we relevant? And how do we know? That's the next question. How do you know? And uh, so I hope that I hope that's helpful for you guys, because I know you're doing wonderful work. Yes, Doug, that is helpful. That that is really great advice um, to 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 uh, not only ask our learners what they need, but, you know, to also be um, asking the organizations they work for. Um, we Absolutely. too we too like to look in the mirror a lot. And um, our organization is is. Um, I like to say we're, we're just in a constant cycle of improvement all the time. Um, I think, and that means you're a student of the profession, I believe, which yeah. is wonderful. Yeah I, I, yeah, I certainly hope so. That's certainly what we aspire mm-hmm. to do. That's wonderful. Yeah, I think, I, you know, we'll, ne- we'll never be finished learning as an That's organization. Right. <laughs> so. You know, the, there was a saying, I don't know if, if you've ever heard of a gentleman named Tom Peters. He was uh, still around. He, uh, back in the 80s, he was one of the premier learning or um, business consultants. And he had a saying, which was, we've got to be getting more better than they're getting more better or else we're getting less better or more worse. Mm-hmm. Now that may sound kind of odd, but in a competitive way, the idea of continuous improvement, we got to continue to get more better mm-hmm. than those people that we are in competition with. And the reason is because they're not standing still either. Exactly. Right? And uh, to me, it's always been a very powerful kind of thought. That is a powerful thought. Thank you for that. Um, Well, gosh, Mark, it looks like it's time for rapid fire questions. I'm going to hand this back to you for the first couple. All right. So, Doug, what we do here in this part of the podcast, we do what's called rapid fire questions. So we're going to ask you a few things, find out a little bit more about you. And for instance, we understand that your wife is a former nurse. What's it like to be the spouse nurse? 
Oh my goodness. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. My wife was a, uh, a pediatric nurse worked more than 30 years at, uh, for the Duke university health system, um, became lead nurse of, uh, of, a, a clinic for pediatrics, uh, Durham pediatrics. Um, I can tell you it's challenging, but incredibly rewarding. The, the reality is my wife worked harder than I ever dreamed to work. She was my absolute hero, or still is, by the way. But when she worked, because I mean, the dedication it took to be really, really good at what she did. And I was very proud of her because she was named the, um, I can't remember the exact the exact award, but with the late, top nurse in the system one year. But she, but her commitment to uh, to what she did was just unbelievable. So I have nothing but but um, respect for her, and I learned a ton from her too. And you know, the biggest thing I think I learned from her was compassion, right? Because you know, I think the idea that every day I go, I was a business profession. You go to work, and you're focused on building a business, or you're focused on how do you make money doing what you're doing, and all these things that are kind of business ish. But if you don't have compassion for the people that you're doing it for and the people you're doing it with, it just doesn't make it as real, right? And uh, that was one thing that I learned from her. And uh, I think you get that from a lot of the people that have chosen nursing, for example, as their profession is there has to be a compassion for people, uh, for them to do what they do and to do it well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Can't agree 100% on that. Absolutely agree 100%. So here, here's something I heard about. I keep hearing about Jackson and Sherman. So who are Jackson and Sherman? And can you tell us a little bit about the work they were doing with your wife pre-COVID? I'll be, I, I'm always proud to tell you about it. They are my canine kids, I call them. Uh, Jackson is the elder. <clears throat> He's now 14. And Sherman is uh, about nine and a half. They're both uh, yellow labs. And they are certified therapy dogs. And my wife and each one of them were certified uh, as, as a certified team and worked and, and would still be doing it now if it wasn't for COVID, but uh, at Ronald McDonald House, working with uh, the kids at the house who are going through phenomenal, phenomenal, um, let's just say medical procedures, whatever it may be. But uh, she was also, and they were also very active before COVID in a program called C-Spot Read. And if those, uh, those of you have never heard of, it's a program that's kind of going through the country for elementary school children where they may have reading disabilities or a little bit behind. And what they do is they read to the dog instead of reading. You know how you might have to read in class or to your, in front of your students and they get a high anxiety because they're going to be embarrassed if they can't read well or whatever. But when they read to the dog, that anxiety goes away. And uh, it's an incredibly powerful program and we just we loved it and I get my wife would let me go every now and then I got to sit on the sidelines and watch and it almost bring you to tears sometime what's going on so so they're my my canine boys they're pieces of work though I'm gonna tell you that love them <laughs> that's great thank you for asking Janie you're yeah. welcome absolutely Janie you have any questions for Doug Yes, Doug, I love hearing about your canine kids. Um, I have one of those too. And I know a lot of us listening on the podcast are probably animal lovers of some kind. Um, but I am curious to know, Doug, what would you be doing if you weren't doing what you're doing now? What would you, what would you be doing instead? 
Oh my gosh. Uh, well, I guess there's a question of whether it be professional or personally, right? So professional, you know, I've been in this so long. I can't imagine another profession. I got into it by mistake, as I told you, but I just, I found that I just love the profession. I love what we do and I love why we do it. Um, and I, I'll be honest and tell you, I can't imagine anything else. Now, on a personal level, I'd be playing a heck of a lot more golf and I'd be on my boat at the beach a heck of a lot more. Um, and, uh, you know, be outside doing some things like fishing and things like that, that unfortunately with COVID and the other stuff has kind of hampered our ability to get out and do the fun stuff. But, uh, but uh, I think professionally, I just, I don't know. I just, I love what I do and I love this profession. And it's one of those professions that at night when you put your head on the pillow, uh, you can, you can feel like, hey, you know, I think I am doing something pretty cool and I am doing something good for people, right? In my small, little, minute way, we are doing something co pretty cool. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's good that you you feel that way. They, they say if you love your work that much, it doesn't really feel like work. So that's right. Exactly. That's a good place to be. Yeah. Um, my last question for you, Doug, is that we are, we're building a reading list from these podcasts. So tell us about a favorite book that's inspired you. Uh, okay. Uh, well, besides for, here's the fun side, you know, uh, the Bible obviously has inspired me more than anything um, and uh, always will, right? It's, it's at the heart and soul of, of who I am. But I, I generally, I read a lot more what I call business biographies, you know, Alexander Hamilton fits into that, a book called Titan about the Rockefeller. There, it's, it's books that's written by a gentleman named Ron Chernow, uh, which I think are fascinating, fascinating, fascinating details of history. But I will say that the one book, I could recommend a book uh, that I'd like to, to kind of pass on to everybody. It's the book that, that uh, I was speaking about earlier about Anders' book. And the name of that book is Peak, The Secrets for the New Science of Expertise. And what Anders talks about in this particular book, it's a very easy read. It's a fast read. It's a fun read. Anders does storytelling of his research and people he's met with and talked to and tells stories of people who became the top chess players in the world. Talks about uh, these kids that were a chess team in a middle school <clears throat> in West Virginia. He talks about that. It's just a fascinating uh, look at what it takes to reach peak performance. And, you know, peak doesn't always mean you're a professional athlete or professional musician, right? Just like I'm saying, he's talking about some chess players or he's talking about, there's a story he did by, or a study he did with a gentleman way back, I think it was in the 80s, I can't remember the exact time, about memorization. By the way, you know, learning, if you really look at the profession of learning, I'm sorry I'm on the sidetrack, but learning the study of learning is really began back in the 1800s with the study of memory because we, we somewhat correlated the idea. If I remember something, I must've learned it. So just some, some fodder for some folks to think about there, but Anders work studied people in memory and goes back in the day the story about a gentleman that they, he taught a phenomenal, or they learned how to remember certain things that were phenomenal. The guy actually made on Johnny Carson. As a matter of fact. So, uh, but anyway, that's the book I would recommend. And I think it's a fascinating, easy read. And, and it, you can apply it, whether you're a nurse, whether you're a construction worker, whether you're a ball player, I don't care. You can apply some of these very simple things 
to your daily life. And I'm a piano player. And so I apply it to how I practice and learn piano. And I think it's a cool thing. Don't tell me the name of the book one more time. The name of the book is Peak Secrets from the New Science of Expertise. And it's by a gentleman named Dr. Anders Erickson. Okay. E-R-I-C-S-S-O-N, I believe it's spelling. Anders. And well, I think I think if, if you read it, I think you'll enjoy it. Fast read, but a really fun read. All right. Well, great. Thank you for that, Doug. Doug, I'm curious now if our audience would like to follow you. Is there somewhere they can do that um, on on the on the internet or on socials? Yeah, I, I'm not a, a. Maybe this is telling of my age. I won't <laughs> go too far with that. Uh, I'm not a big big social media guy, but. Uh, uh, I am on LinkedIn. You can find me, Doug Harward, H-A-R-W-A-R-D. And, um, and, uh, but the, the real best, if you don't mind, is go to trainingindustry.com. We would welcome anybody there. You can see most all of my material that I've written, articles, most of the stuff I've written um, is on trainingindustry.com. And of course, you'll find a lot of other stuff there uh, written about best practices, what's happening in the industry, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I've I've uh, I've checked that website out thoroughly. I've listened to a couple webinars. It is well done website. It's got a lot of great information, a lot of good resources. Thank on you. We're, we're very proud of it. We're very proud of it. Yeah, you should be. Thank you. All right. Yeah, it is a great place. I agree with you on that, Janie. So, Doug, I want to take this time to thank you for joining us for this episode of BCN and Friends. Doug, thank you so much for giving us your time, giving us your insights, giving us your knowledge and wisdom. We appreciate it so much. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. I wish you guys all the best. And, uh, it, you know, if we can help you guys in any way, feel free to reach out again. And please, I'd like to share with your listeners, uh, thank you for what they do, right? In, you know, there's, there's a reason why a lot of people still view them or, or very much view them as heroes in our society today with all that's going on. And I, I'm one of those that you can cast me into the, the big, strong believers in what they do. And so I want to thank them for every day going in and putting even themselves at risk. And uh, I can't tell you how grateful we are for that. Thank you we appreciate that. that. Thank and to all of our listeners, we hope you'll stay tuned as we continue on with this series and bring in new and meaningful content and perspectives. If you have a suggestion for an episode, please email us at bcen at bcen.org. I am Mark Eggers here with Janie Shoemaker. And on behalf of the entire BCEN team, we thank you and celebrate you for all that you are doing as professional nurses across the emergency spectrum. Until next time, 